again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Deep down, we're all uncomfortable with the sovereignty of God. If God is really in charge, there are implications, small and large, that we just don't like, but will, by God's grace, eventually evoke the opposite reaction. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, A Glorious Grace, The Sovereignty of Grace, with the second part of a message entitled, doctrines of grace. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now it's time to jump into our teaching this week. I don't think that there is a week that I remember in any series that I have done that I longed as badly for people to have heard part one before they hear this part two. We're in three weeks of a subject matter that's incorporated in the larger series, A Glorious Grace. And this is called the doctrines of grace. There are five specific doctrines of grace that have been talked about uh, for generation after generation. Uh, Taking that which is most important to understand about grace, to have a solid biblical understanding And then to share those things in a three-week period, challenging enough, but the first two of the five are extremely challenging. What we went over last week, people don't want to hear, but I'm going to share this week, the vast, vast, vast majority of the Christian church will not agree and accept what we're saying. I will show you, as I did last week, that what I'm teaching is part of the majority report of the history of the church. So it's not that we've come up with something new or different. Not so. But before I jump into what is not a church growth message, this is not a message that I would give in order to cause more people to want to come. Not going to happen. But this is such a Christian growth series. Or believe it or not, for you that are coming that are as seekers, you're seeking to understand the faith of Christianity. I'm telling you, I I think this is extremely helpful for you. Extremely helpful. Now, I've been called to not just be the teacher of this church. In fact, that is really not my role. My role is to be a pastor teacher. If I wanted to teach you what I'm going to share right now, then I would simply throw up, walk through the text, say this is what it is, this is what it means, this is why, da-da-da-da, and I'll give you a lot of data, and I would be a teacher to you. But God's called me to be a pastor teacher to you. And that means that what I am called to do is to care for you. And the best way I can care for you is to help you understand why God says what he says. Not just what he says, but to try to get beneath it. And I know this, that only to the degree that you want to believe complicated, challenging, hard teachings of Scripture, only to the degree that you want to will you ever get there. And only when you get there will you find the truth that sets you free. So as a pastor, it's my commission to say, I want your freedom. So I just want you to hear this now. I'm not... I'm not teaching this so that I can convince more people to believe what I believe. And that's not it at all. It's so that you can have what I've had and what I've experienced because of these beliefs. 
So I hope that you do hear that well. Now, in light of that, I want to quickly, just a couple of things, and I'm going to quote a couple things from last week, but i got to say just this about week one. The first doctrine of grace, doctrine is a set of belief, grace is God's unmerited favor. The first is that God's grace is essential. It's the first thing you have to know about grace. If you think it's helpful, but not essential, if you think it's partial, but not total, then we've not started off well at all. You see, the truth of it is, we looked at scriptures like Ephesians 2, and we found out that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we began to see what dead means, it sees that, man, I mean, we are literally without any capability to do anything to help ourselves, nothing whatsoever. We learned through Ephesians 2 and other places that, no, we didn't just lose we didn't just lose our perfection at the fall of mankind, but we lost our goodness. We lost it all. Nobody wants to think of themselves as vile, disgusting traitors of God, but it's really who we are. I quoted last time J.C. Ryle. What a, an incredible teacher of the word now hundreds of years ago, but here's what he said about it. As I mentioned last week, there are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of a disease will always bring with them wrong views of a remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure for that corruption. So, we were talking about last week the corruption, the sinfulness of the heart. Nobody likes to hear that. But only to the degree we get that do we find the grand remedy which we look at today. And so I closed my time sharing a, a, a little statement that Jack Miller, one of the greats of the past generation, but Jack Miller put it this way. He says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. You'll never know how much you're loved until you know how bad a sinner. And so last week we had to do what we did last week just to set the stage to now be able to see the glorious love of God and what he's done, the great remedy that we know of is grace. So I'll, I'll just say one more time, I hope you'll go to the podcast for last week if you missed it, because it, it does lay a very important foundation to the understanding of this week. But I'll try to make it as helpful as possible, even though if you didn't hear last week, that at least you get the heart behind this teaching. And that's the pastor and the teacher side. You've got to get the heart, not just the mind. Understand the why, not just the what. So the second of the doctrines of grace God's grace is sovereign. And that word sovereign has to do with power or authority. In this case, we're referring to God. See, there are two things that uh, I even mentioned them last week. I mentioned them a lot, but they're, they're two essentials, obviously among many other things of great importance, but they're two essentials for all of us in coping and dealing with life. And, and one is the complete knowledge to really embrace that, that, uh, that God loves me. Uh, that's important. We got to know God's love. Uh, we got to know that He cares, right? 
But then we also have got to know that God is capable. If we, if we have a sense of just one or the other, we get nowhere. Security does not come from there. Security comes from, from knowing that, that uh, we are protected by strength and love. When we have those two, we feel so secure. That's what we're all longing for. In fact, I'm convinced that, that we have no clue how much that, that, that we are craving every day the security that comes from those two. I crave it. That's why, as I said last week, every morning now, I try to start my day with a little prayer, and the prayer is unfamiliar to very few of you, and that is this, my Father who cares, who art in heaven, heave on, lift it up, who is capable, hallowed be your name. Isn't that what Jesus taught his disciples to pray? I'm one of his disciples. I said, why wouldn't I pray that? Why did he tell them to pray and start with those words? Because he's saying to his people, look, you got to know these two things. God cares and he's capable. You'll look at life circumstances and you'll say, well, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's not capable. Oh, no, he is. And we have to go back to the truth, the foundation of these two. I know this, that to the extent that we miss the teaching of this doctrine of grace that we're about to look at, we're, we're never going to know the security that we are so longing to have. Let me, uh, let me just put it as a, as a journal that I, I journaled this last week, and I thought I'd just share it with you. I was writing this. I said, unless we see the extent of our sin, we cannot grasp the depth of love required by God to embrace us unconditionally. So hear that first part. The extent of our sin, why? So that we can believe that he, he does love us unconditionally. But listen to now this. And unless we see the extent of God's sovereignty in showing us grace, we will always see his embrace conditioned by something we've done to merit his love. You young people. Let me tell you, you young people, you beyond any generation, beyond my generation for sure, though I thought we were screaming out for it, you're screaming for unconditional love like, like no generation that's ever lived. You know what you're saying is you're saying, don't you love me? Don't you love me because I'm good? I don't want that. Don't you love me because I'm related to so-and-so? Don't you love me because I'm friends with? Don't you date me because I'm prettier than other girls. Don't you love me because I scored more goals or I, I had better grades than the rest of the class. What we're doing is, is, is this generation beyond any, and we all do it, we're screaming out saying, no, would you love me unconditionally? That's all I really want. I want to know that I'm loved unconditionally. Don't put any conditions on it. And here comes a doctrine of grace that screams out in every part of its teaching. You are loved unconditionally, and even the church goes, don't tell me that in this doctrine. In fact, without this doctrine, there will be no unconditional love from your God. Point blank. That's why pastorally I have to say to you, I teach this not to win a doctrinal battle. I teach this to save a hurting heart. And I hope you look at it from that perspective. If you want to know the name of this doctrine, 
just to give it its familiar name, the biblical term, predestination. Sometimes we talk about it as election, God's electing work. By the way, this is not fatalism. Fatalism is very atheistic. Fatalism says, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and you know, so, so it's, it's godless. No, 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 that's not, what, that's not what this teaching is at all. Which, by the way, when's the last time you heard a sermon on this? Probably never unless you've been in this church, and that was 12 years ago. No, it's not talked about much. It really isn't. But again, as I said, it is, it is not a minority report. It's a majority report through history. It's not today and modern, but throughout history of the church. If you go back to the 1600s, 1689, the Confession of the Baptist um, Convention, 1689 says this, those of mankind, and hold on to your seatbelts here just a little bit, those of mankind who are predestined unto life, God, and listen to this, before the foundation of the world was laid, and according to his eternal and immutable purpose, which we don't know, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, which we don't understand, hath chosen, important word, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature. Do you hear that? You're going to hear this in Scripture in just a minute, but I'm preparing you for the Scripture. Without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. Spurgeon reaffirmed this by, in detail. The great Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. And their confession of the 18, the last confession of a Baptist uh, gathering, it says the very same thing, identical. The whole point is this, if our condition is dead, then how do we find life? Can we create life so that we can do something? No, we, we can't do because we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. So you start going through the scripture. And what do you see? You see God choosing. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not something unusual. God does choose. And you don't, we don't understand why God does. In Genesis, he takes a, a man, Abraham, and he chooses him. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, he was not a better person, a more moral, a more religious, a better. It was simply he goes to, to Abraham, and he turns Abraham into who Abraham becomes, a father of many nations. Then you get to, in the book of Deuteronomy 7, and, and particularly verse 7, an interesting text there. That, that talks about uh, his own choice of Israel as a people, the nation of Israel. And it makes it very clear there that a nation was not a favorite nation. It was a favored nation. It's like as if, and it wasn't random, we know that. Uh, it was not without his design, but we don't understand it. But he takes this people that were no better than any other people called Israel, and he chooses to raise them up and to model his love through them through the ages until we come to the church. So once again, he chooses, not arbitrarily, but he chooses. It's, well, is that how you do this, God? Then you come to the story of Jacob. And though the story of Jacob is told in the Old Testament, we then read about it in the same context of discussion on this topic of God's election, his predestining work. And we see that in Romans chapter 9. I want to read that text now. This is the text, if you were with me last week, where my pastor in a church that did not hold to the infallibility of Scripture 
when I went to my pastor, very confused, very anxious about this text that I came across, and I just read it for what it said, and I did not like it. I was hurting over it. I go to my parents. My parents say, uh, we, we hire a preacher to do that, so I have an appointment with the preacher, and I sit down, and I say, as a young student, I say, well, what, what is this Romans 9? I don't get it. And he goes, he looks at me. Remember, he, he looks at me, and he goes, I don't know. I know this. It doesn't mean what it appears to say. And he said, I've ripped that page out of my Bible because I just can't believe what it has to say. I wasn't willing to do that. I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to understand. This is the text that I was grappling with. Here's how it reads in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca. Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Isaac is the child of Abraham. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, which is totally opposite of the culture. It usually be just the other way around. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, don't be confused. That word hate is a little strong the way we would use it there because uh, in the Hebrew, it's a term of comparison. In comparison to, one is loved that much more than the other. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? So you can understand having known what the audience is going to think when he says it because this is what he meant by it. He says, I know you're going to say that's not fair, which tells us, no, what he said, he knew would be thought that to be that, but it's not the case. So he says in answer to his own question, very strong language here in the Greek, may it never be. It's like saying, God forbid, no. It's not injustice at all. We later, we do read that does, not, does God not have the right, uh, you know, as the potter? to do whatever he chooses with the clay. And it reads that and it sounds, well, I don't like that. That's not a God I want to, well, hold on, hold on. You do want to believe this. You really do. So why would Christians reject this passage? I mean, you can ask the vast majority of people who hold the Bible and say, do you believe that God predestines people before any time, before they've done anything good or bad that his choice would stand? Well, no, no. Why would you say no to that? Here'd be the answers. Things like this. Well, it's illogical. What do you mean it's illogical? Well, I know my story. I know the story of many other people. I know the story of people in the Bible. They're going through life. They're against God. They're not walking with God. Maybe they hate God. But then they choose to follow him and become one of his children. And it's after their choice, he becomes one of their children. Therefore, well, there is a condition in the sense that there's something conditioned about my heart that now wants God because of what I've chosen to, to do, and, and that's what you see, and, and that's my experience, and that just seems logical. Well, first of all, it, I would say to any of you that are Christians saying, I really believe in the Bible. I truly believe in the Bible. I know there are many here that say, I'm struggling with understanding why and so forth. That's why I teach it a lot, to understand why we believe the Bible is God's Word. But, but assuming you do believe that it is, please don't ever say, I don't agree with predestination. I don't believe in a, such a thing as predestination. 
Now, what you can say is this. I interpret predestination to be different than you do or you do or whatever, and you interpret, don't, don't just say he doesn't. We're about to look at a text in Romans chapter 8 that's setting up this whole text. And in that particular passage, there's no doubt about what's being said there. God does predestine. It uses the word, God predestined. So let's say we agree with it. We just may have different views as to what that is. Let me just show you the text in light of how we typically interpret it. Well, God just sees ahead of time what people are going to do. And he chooses those that he knows will choose them. So yes, I believe in predestination. He did it before the foundation of the earth. And he did it because he saw that they were. He didn't choose them because he saw they weren't. Which, by the way, does away with the idea that God for eternity has always been omniscient, knowing all things. At some point, he'd have to look ahead to find out what was to determine now. No, that's not it at all. In fact, this text seems to make it pretty clear. It's what we often have been uh, found to be called the, uh, the order salutis, the order of salvation, as it's called. Uh, and this is the golden chain, as others have called this particular text, the golden chain of salvation. It reads like this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whoa, there you go. See, he foreknew, therefore he predestined. It's the first of five things that it says God does. He foreknew, then he predestined. Well, the problem with that is if you study the word foreknow, it doesn't mean see ahead of time. It doesn't mean that at all. The word know there would be a term that would best be probably translated for us loved. Uh, Abraham knew Sarah, his wife. He went into her, had intimate relationships. It's a, it's a familial loving uh, term there of relationship. So he says, no, whom he foreloved, he also predestined. So already down to two of the five links in the chain, and we're seeing predestined because he foreloved. We don't understand why he foreloved. To be conformed to the image of his son. And now he tells us why. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So there's the third link in the chain. He called meaning that God did something to woo the heart of us who are dead, to make that that heart come alive. We call that regeneration. He called. There has to be life. And those he gives to life by the call, he justifies. That's when we're declared righteous. That's when you see people making a choice for him. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, means they're going to go to heaven. They're going to have all things become new, everything made, made perfect. His glory is going to be ultimate, and we are glorified. Now, very interesting to understand. When you see that link, those five links, there's a principle of interpretation, and that is when you see a number of things, this, and, 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 you have to treat them all the same in this regard. You can say that everyone, one, two, three, four, five, or some, one, two, three, four, five. But what you can't say is some, and and then no, not Everybody, some, some, everybody. You can't just randomly throw in your some or everyone. Not at all. So if you do that through the text, here's what you come up with. You would either say some he foreknew that he loved, he predestined. And some he predestined, he called. 
And some he called, he justified. And we might say, well, that's okay. But none of us want to hear this. And some he justified, he glorified. Meaning that some of us who become Christians will perish. No. All he foreknows, he predestines. And all he predestines, he calls. And all he calls, he justifies. And all he justifies, he glorifies. So that's one reason it just cuts across the grain of our logic. We say, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But there's a second reason, and this is a good one too. I mean, I understand the, the heart behind this. It says, no, because it violates free will, and I've got to believe in free will, and I'm glad you do. Because free will is taught throughout the Scripture. Never does God coerce the heart of an individual. You don't ever see that. In fact, Sproul gives a great, R.C. Sproul, great theologian, he gives a wonderful definition of free will. He defines it this way. It's not the ability to make a choice without prejudice or inclination of disposition. And I'll hold there. See, it's not, we always say, oh, well, it's being able to make a choice where there's no prejudice, there's no inclination of disposition. There's no way to make a choice without that. Uh, everything would be done just spontaneously. It would be without motive. We'd just sit around and we'd never do anything. No, not, not at all. But what is free will? It's the ability to choose what one desires. And that's what we can say, that all of our decisions are free, but they're determined by what we desire. And here's the point. What do dead people desire? Nothing. We don't desire God because we're dead. Augustine, now this is in 300s, the mid-300s A.D., We're going way back in theological study. He said it this way, fallen man has a free will, but he lacks moral ability. That's what we don't have. We lost the moral ability in the fall. So now in light of that, read a few of these scriptures. And I'm just going to read the four scriptures uh, just back to back. Let's bring them up one after the other. First in Acts, the others in John, the same chapter. It says, In Acts, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then it says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. They were justified. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. See, Jesus kept teaching this. And as a result of that, many of his disciples, it says in verse 66, withdrew, were not walking with him anymore. They didn't like the teaching. But see, Jesus taught it. Why did he teach it? Because Jesus was the pastor of pastors. He said, oh God, I want you to know this. It's the Father's work. It's not yours. And when you start believing it's yours, then your love from the Father becomes conditional. So let me make it as practical and helpful as possible. When I was a a student, I was just in my, my early development as a Christian. And I happened to be at a conference where a man that was teaching, 25 years my, my senior, PhD, and, and uh, I mean, brilliant scholar and a godly, godly leader. And as I was introduced to see this and hear this, it so bothered me, I went up to this 
this uh, noted Christian leader, and I said, that cannot be true. Some of you have heard his response to me. I'll share it with those that haven't. He said, that cannot be true? Why not? I said, because it makes no sense. It's just not right. It's just illogical. It, it, it can't be. He said, really? He went up to a blackboard. We don't have blackboards much anymore, but this is a blackboard. We'll use it. But he had chalk. And this was a much bigger blackboard, but he takes this big blackboard and he says, can we use this blackboard to represent the knowledge of God? I said, sure. He said, let me ask you, is God's knowledge finite or infinite? I said, infinite. He said, is the board finite or infinite? I said, it's finite. He said, yeah, so in other words, I've way understated my case because this board is this size, but it should go forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in both directions, right? I went, yeah. So he says, so I am understating my case. I'm not overstating it, right? He goes, I said, yeah. Then he draws a circle on that board. And he says, now, let's just say this circle represents all of the knowledge accumulated from every human for all time. I mean, every bit of human knowledge ever existing. Now, obviously, that circle is way, 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 way too big to a board that's finite that should go forever and ever and ever. So if we're making this infinite, this should be a dot, but we'll make it a very large circle here. Okay? Then he draws a circle inside that. He said, let's say this circle, this circle represents the knowledge of the single most intelligent person with more knowledge than any other human that's ever lived, probably alive today, whoever that might be. He said, now, do you realize that this is maybe a 15th of this entire area? And there's nobody that has a 15th of all the knowledge of all mankind in every discipline and science of life and so forth? No. So I've way, 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 way understated my case. I said, yeah, that's correct. And then he puts a little dot right there in the middle. And he says, let's let that dot represent, Randy, your knowledge compared to the most brilliant person who's ever lived who has the most knowledge and then he assured me this was his grandest understatement <laughs> said that dot is way 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 too big now then he he just erased the two circles he just took them away and it left this dot and that little dot he said now that dot represents your knowledge compared to this board that goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever all directions. He said, do you understand how that dot is way, way, way too big for this illustration? I went, yes, sir. <laughs> and then he started putting little X's all over the board. Boom, 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 boom. He said, do you think there are things out here that could be true of God and what God says and does that just don't quite fit onto your little dot? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, I'm going to give you some advice as a follower of Christ and a believer in the Word of God. Don't you determine if something's true based on whether you understand it or not, based on whether you think the Bible most clearly teaches that other than something else. And you follow what God's Word says. I will promise you I have seen that to be the beauty of how to look at Scripture. I've yet to find that I was right and God was wrong.
to believe his ways. You young people, you can say, oh, I know he says don't do this and don't do that, and, but I know better. I'll be a happier person. Don't believe it. Just don't even buy into it. Let me use this as a kind of closing story. Imagine that there's a, a young girl who is dying, and she knows she's dying, and though she, so she decides that she would like to offer her organs to other girls, and just that's her desire to do that. And the father has the responsibility in the last days of her life to go through the National Registry for eyes, people that need eyes, and, and, and people that need a heart, and all the things, the, the various organs of the body. And, and, and it's not arbitrary, but nobody knows why, but he has to pick, and he does. And he picks, and he picks, and he picks, and here are the people, young girls, just like his daughter. And, and then his daughter passes away, and, and then all the surgeries are complete, and all are successful. And he finds himself treating each of those little girls as if it were his daughter. The love that he showed them, what he provided, how he cared for them, just, it, it was significant. And, and the girls realized that, that they, out of all the thousands upon thousands of people, that they had been chosen by this father to receive what they received. And they realized that it was their very life or their sight or whatever that was provided because of the choice that the father made. In light of that, they found them just wanting to go to that man because they loved him and appreciated him so much. Imagine that you or I were one of those little girls. And then we realized that, well, wait, wait, wait. You mean that that you just chose me and that there were others that could have been chosen, but you chose me and it wasn't done randomly. It was with purpose, but I, I know you won't tell me why, but I know this, you've made it very clear that it's not because of anything I've done or, or anything that made me special or more beautiful, more attractive, more this, more that. There was nothing for you to gain more from me than anybody else, and, but you chose me. Can you imagine the more that we would just, just kind of think on that, the more we would find ourselves loving that father all the more? See, it's a great parallel. It's a great parallel to the gospel story. And the gospel story is simply that that's what God did. He did choose, and it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't random. I mean, it, it wasn't just, okay, no. He made a specific choice. Why, we don't know. It's according to his own mercy and his love. That's all we know. But we know this, it was not based on any condition that he saw in us. That's what you call unconditional love. And when you begin to see that you mean the love of the Father is unconditioned, that finally I have my plea that I've been begging, please, people, love me unconditionally. And please, God, would you love me unconditionally? And he says, I do. That's why I let you know Romans 9 and the other texts. Because I didn't want you to miss out on how unconditional my love really is. See, folks, it might raise questions. We could address them were there time, and there's not. Why pray? Why evangelize? Why? But, okay, important stuff, and they can be dealt with. 
But the big issue is this. Just answer the question. God, do you love me unconditionally? Or is there some condition by which you love me? And when he says to you, oh, are you kidding me? I predestined you. That's when the knees bow in the morning. As mine started doing at that time in my life as a young student. And saying, oh God, I don't understand why you did this for me. But in light of it, all glory to you, God. Thank you. I love you. Want to love God more? See his love better. You want to see his love better? Look at his predestinating love. Unbelievable. And one last thing I just want to say. I know there are many here who are adopted into your human family. Let me tell you, you are the loved of all loved. The rest of us, parents had no choice. They had to take us. <laughs> but they chose you. And there are a lot of people they didn't choose, that they could have. But they chose you. Rest in his love. Christian, rest in his love. Seeker, go seek his love. Invite him to indwell your heart to see what happens. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for a love that is really unconditional. And thank you for helping fill the need of security in our lives by just knowing that. And Lord, where our understanding is so challenged in this arena and raises questions we can't answer, may we bow the knee to you and trust you for what you have to say. Father, if in any way what I've said has missed the target of truth, I pray that you would keep all from finding places that veer from reality of what you have to say. But may we find ourselves longing for the truth. May that truth set us free, and may we use that freedom to bring greater honor to you. Even now, Lord, indwell some hearts that are bowing before you now, saying, indwell me, change me, I want to follow you forever. We ask it in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.